You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Matthew 13, 31 through 32. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This is the word of the Lord. Now turn with me to Second Samuel, chapter 2, and we'll read verses 1 through 28. After this, David inquired of the Lord, shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives, also Aniahim of Jezreel, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David brought up his men who were with him, every one with his household. And they lived in the towns of Hebron. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. When they told David, it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord because you showed this loyalty to Saul your Lord and buried him. Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul your Lord is dead and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. But Abner the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, took Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Maniam. And he made him king over Gilead, and to the Asherites, and Jezreel, and Ephraim, and Benjamin, and all of Israel. Ish-bosheth, Saul's son, was forty years old when he began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years, but the house of Judah followed David. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ish-bosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Maniahim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of uh, Zeria, and the servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool, and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number. Twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side. So they fell down. Therefore, that place was called Helketh Hezirim, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeriah were there Joab, Abisha, and Eshel. Now Ashel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle, and Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to his right nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, It is you, Asahel. And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? 
But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died there, died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abisha pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Amah, which lies before Geah, on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? And Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would not have given up the pursuit of their brothers until the morning. So Joab blew the trumpet, and all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor, nor did they fight any more. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is life. It's refreshment to our bones. And I pray this morning uh, in all that we look at within Second Samuel 2 and the story of um, how you're redeeming all things. Pray that it would be honoring to your name. Pray that you'd strengthen us so that we can be valiant, valiant for your son's kingdom. In your name, amen. Uh, my name is Ryan. I am one of our elders. I'm also uh, on staff. I do our care and counseling. It's good to be with all of you this morning. Uh, Brian and his family, at least half of his family, are in Sheffield, England right now. Uh, they just had the first service um, for Eastside Community Church, a church that we're sponsoring for joining the CRAC. So um, you might have heard them being prayed for earlier on. That's, that's the church that Brian and Jenny are at this morning. Um, so be praying for them this week as they get to spend some time over there with them. Um, and I'm excited to be preaching with you all this morning on 2 Samuel 2. So let's uh, first dive in by summarizing where we've been. Um, the a- end of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel 31, we saw a horrible blow being dealt to Israel. Uh, the Philistines had um, dealt a horrible blow, and Jonathan and Saul died. So following that, David in 2 Samuel 1 um, receives word, report from a lying Amalekite. Sorry, uh, yeah, Amalekite. Um, And then David's lamentation. The first thing he does is not set up his own kingdom, say this is my chance. First, what he does is he laments the death of Saul, and the death of Jonathan. He laments over what was worthy, what was good in Saul and Jonathan. And so now we come to David's next move. And considering the time and position that we're in, that David was in, you would think what he would do here is, again, make a quick move by asserting himself as king. It's what we, any of us might have done. But that's not what David does amidst Israel likely being in some significant confusion, um, David 
doesn't demand Israel to rally around him, but instead he patiently proceeds in acting as the Lord's anointed king. And we're going to see a contrast this morning between how David acts and how some other men act when they are in conflict with one another. So, first thing we we see, first one of David's acts, is he, verse 1, if you've closed your Bibles, we're going to just slowly go through this. I'm going to summarize the text. Verse 1 through 4, we see David inquiring of the Lord. And I don't know if you remember this from 1 Samuel, um, but Saul's name, his main name uh, means asking. The asking one. So David, what he's doing here is significant in that he's actually being the true Saul. He's going to the Lord and he's asking, he's inquiring, verse 1 to 4, of the Lord. So he prays to the Lord and the question that he asks um, It's one of faith and of courage. So to hold up to you again, what just happened in this um, great blow that was dealt to Israel um, at Mount Gilboa, if you uh, were to look at a map, Mount Gilboa is north of this other spot we're going to look at from the tribe of Judah, Hebron. Just north of that is Mount Gilboa, Jezreel. That's where that battle happened and where a great blow was dealt to Israel. Um, Saul's forces after Saul's death fleed to the east of the Jordan. We'll get more into that in a moment. But what David does here is he's actually doing, he's boldly asking a question that's completely dependent on God's promises. The Lord tells David, what does he tell him? Um, so, So David asks him, Shall I go up to any of the cities of Judah? The Lord says, go up. David said, to which shall I go up? To Hebron. So David goes up to Hebron, um, and he establishes his kingdom with his enemies who just made a great blow to the north of him, and they're also established to the west of them. So he establishes the kingdom of Judah in the midst of his enemies. He's doing so in faithful obedience to the Lord, even though this is a dangerous place to establish himself. So uh, Hebron itself is a city packed full of a lot of meeting. When you think Hebron, you should think, well, we need to look back to what's happened previously um, in this place. So I'm going to draw out three things that have happened there before. Uh, We see back in Joshua, Caleb... um, he inherits, uh, inherits Hebron after killing the Anakim. So Caleb's a giant killer. Anakim are giants. Caleb's a giant killer. His reward was Hebron. And now here what we see is David, a giant killer, is also inheriting Hebron. That's significant. We also know that in Hebron, uh, that's where the bodies of the patriarchs are buried. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and their wives. And last of all, we see that this, is, this um, was established in the book of Joshua, Joshua 21. It was a city of refuge. So those are three key things we should think about as we look at Hebron and David having established himself here. David, then what the next thing he does 
after first being a king who inquires of the Lord, who makes his reign dependent on what the Lord says, the next thing he does is extremely smart. Brian talked about this last week, that David is making these really smart political moves, and he makes another one here in verses 5 to 7. Um, upon discovering that the men of Jabesh-Gilead had um, recovered the body of Saul, he goes and he, um, he honors them. So first, in verse 5, we see David blessing them, blessing them by the Lord because of what they've done in their good deed towards Saul. Second, we see him proclaiming the Lord's blessing over him. So verse 6, Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you, and I will do good to you because you have done this thing. And then last, we see him um, making a proposal. In verse 7, Now therefore, let your hands be strong and valiant. For Saul, your Lord, is dead, and the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Proverbs 20, uh, verse 28 says, Steadfast love and faithfulness preserve the king. And by steadfast love, his throne is upheld. And so David is seeking to actually live out a good He's seeking to be a good king by showing steadfast love and faithfulness to those that God has put under him. But what does Jabesh Gilead do? Jabesh Gilead does the same thing that the rest of Israel does. Verse 8, Abner. Abner makes, he commits a great sin. But Abner, the son of Ner, commander of Saul's army, he took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Mahanaim. And he made him king. So they construct a kingdom of man. Saul, in Saul's situation, uh, he had stopped at one point inquiring of the Lord. It's significant that here, um, that same trend, you know, an object in motion stays in motion. Unless there's a draw to repentance here, um, they are going along the same trend. They They are establishing a kingdom of man. We saw back in um, 1 Samuel 15 that uh, God had torn the kingdom from Saul and now he was giving it to David. So David wasn't actually establishing in what we saw in verses five, uh, sorry, in verse four, the men of Judah establishing David. That wasn't Judah um, establishing a kingdom of man and then the Israelites established another king. They were just giving a hearty amen to what God had already said, to the anointing that God had already given um, to his um, to David as a man after his own heart. So that's one distinction we have to see here in what's about to what continues to unfold with Judah and Israel is that David is leading the kingdom of God, whereas Ishbosheth is um, appointed as a kingdom. By man's ambitions. Okay, so in verses 10 through 11, there might seem to be a little discrepancy here. Uh, Ishbosheth reigned for two years, David reigned for seven and a half years. So, where, what happened for five years, somewhere in there with Israel? Um, and what, we, what a lot of scholars say is that what, 
what likely was happening there after a big blow had been dealt to Israel is it took them quite a while to reestablish all these tribes around one king. It took quite a while, whereas David, um, he was able to rally Judah relatively quickly. So um, Judah, relatively quickly after um, this battle at Jezreel, was able to establish his kingdom, whereas it took maybe about five years to establish Israel in, with the cap, new capital being Mahanaim. Is everyone tracking? Mahanaim, interestingly enough, is on the east of the Jordan. That's also significant here. Um, they had retreated. David was in Judah. So unlike Israel, um, sorry, the text then implies um, that Jabesh Gilead, so they followed Ishbosheth, and they weren't, they weren't eager to welcome in the kingdom of God. We're going to talk a lot about that this morning with how men go over to the kingdom of man for pragmatic reasons. Because it just seems a little more convenient. Then Abner, next thing that happens in verses 12, this little civil war that breaks out, um, Abner goes to Gibeon. And again, we have another discrepancy here because Gibeon, that is within the... um, land of Israel, but it is also on the edge of Judah. And so Abner's going there, and he brings, um, he brings the servants of Ishbosheth, brings a lot of his army, and then Joab responds. Joab goes and meets them. So who is the one provoking a battle here? Um, scholars land in different places about that. Um, Regardless, you know, I think Abner was likely nervous, in the very least, if he was not provoking to bring all these troops to Gibeon. But what we know to be a fact is um, men love an opportunity to fight. So you see this division happening between Judah and Israel, and, well, two armies. Joab, hot-headed Joab, is actually very eager to go down and confront Abner. And Abner then lays, uh, maybe out of fear of Joab, he, he comes up with a plan, says, let, let our young men play before us. And interestingly enough, uh, each of these groups, the men of Judah and the men of Israel, um, select 12 men to start in a competition. Um, other translations call that competition play. But if you read the room, you might know that a lot of these men weren't just wanting to play. Um, they might have felt a little more animosity toward each other. So that playful game turned into 24 men, um, 12 against 12, killing each other. Everyone died. Um, God was showing them, if there was pride in them saying, when, when Israel faces itself, turns against itself in a civil war like this, he wasn't going to choose a side. Even though he had anointed David, when men, by their own pride, confront one another, 
desire to kill each other, God was not going to pick a side. Okay. And we know that that tension was also there because of what happens in verse 17. Not only do all those 24 men kill each other, but then a great battle breaks out. We see after that a great chase scene as Judah was overcoming Israel. And so Israel fled. Joab and his two brothers um, pursued after Abner. It's important to note, um, Joab is the nephew of David. So nephews of David pursue after Abner, Asahel, who has a um, foot as swift as a gazelle. He then, um, maybe in the arrogance of his youth, is set on killing the commander of Israel's army. Okay. One way you might want to read this is that Abner was the bad guy. He was the one who was um, murdering Asahel. But what happens is we actually see, um, for whatever reason, Abner two times warns, uh, warns Asahel, turn back. First tries to turn him back by saying, see some of the other spoil by the young men. Um, Asks him to turn back, and then what does Asahel do? He, he won't turn back. He maybe even wants the honor of being the one to kill the commander of Israel's army. So Asahel um, leaves Abner with no choice, and with the butt of his spear, which if think about this for a second, um, spears were sharpened at the base. They sharpened them so they could just easily stab them into the ground when they were resting. And Abner knew a little trick here to just jab backwards with the butt of his spear. And um, this was not a... um, He didn't want to have to kill Asahel, but after two warnings, he did. And he did so out of self-defense. So Abner was actually um, merely defending himself here. Um, And then we see... I'm going to kind of jump say in a very brief summary the rest of the text, we see kind of a clunky ceasefire at the top of a hill, and then the sun sets as Abner takes his men back to Mahanaim, Joab takes his men back to, um, back to Hebron. The blow to Israel was significant, 360 men died, and including Asahel, 20 men had died in Judah. So there's a much greater blow that was dealt to Israel in that battle. Okay, that's a summary of the text. I want to focus on a couple particular things around conflict now. One being conflict in the kingdom of God, that we should expect conflict to happen in our world amidst when the kingdom of God is here. And then we'll also talk more specifically in a little bit about kingdom um, conflict within the local church. I'm closed. Okay. So uh, the scenes that happened with Israel, that was all internal conflict. Israel had been used to, before this moment, fighting bloody warfare with the Philistines. But now um, this turned into family blood. Bloody warfare... Um, 
at, within a family. So it's fitting this morning for us to now look at the conflict that happens among us. Where do we see this kind of conflict for ourselves? You might see it at a Thanksgiving meal. Later this week, you might see it on Twitter. You might see it in everyday conversations with your coworkers. Um, but what we know is that if we look at what happens at the pool of Gibeon, this game of those, those playing this game at the, uh, at the pool of Gibeon sought a victor for the true Israel. And we, too, we, we might want to, as we look at this text, as we consider the application that it has for ourselves, um, we might think of really simplistic means by which um, we're to view a conflict. And I want to be clear up front by saying there is a right side to be on. Um, for Israel here and for all of God's people, there was a right side to choose to be with the Lord's anointed. But God's means of building a kingdom are different than our means. And sometimes there are good men on a bad side and sometimes there are bad men on a good side. We're going to get more into that in a moment. Um, but first I want to say... Um, you think of uh, the parallel of uh, the American Civil War. I was raised in a public school, and to me, American Civil War was, was, had very clear lines. The North was in the right, the South were all the bad guys, um, and it took me until recently, I'm kind of embarrassed to say, to realize that there were actually a lot of good men fighting for the South, and that my teachers had demonized a lot of those good men. We're going to need to fight a similar tendency as we approach 2 Samuel 2. After the debris has settled, Abner reacted by anointing um, another king against the Lord's anointed. And he knew, we see this later in the next chapter, Abner knew that David was anointed king by the Lord. So you would think that um, after a wicked man's death, the lines would be a lot more clear cut. That's not necessarily true here. We need to have a zeal for the Lord and for his kingdom, but the human heart also loves to cut ties quickly. Between Abner and David, this had already been maybe five years. Um, We need to be a people who are willing to fight for the long game, who are willing to show compassion for our enemies in the right ways. We'll get more into that. But the lines between Judah and Israel, they were not as clear-cut as we'd like for them to be. There were proud men who were still in Judah, and there were humble men like Abner found in Israel. So think about in Matthew 22, think about the parable of the two servants. There were two servants, one that Abner was more like. Abner was the insistent servant who said, I'm not going to go and do the work. But then later on, he went and he did do faithful work for the kingdom. Whereas Joab, as we see in this story, hot-headed Joab, um, said he would serve his master, but then what did he go and do? He's led by his own passions within the kingdom of God while actually serving the kingdom of man. So that presents for us four different types of people. Um, There are faithful men like David, 
who are serving the kingdom of God, who are wanting to lead the kingdom of God. There are wicked men uh, who are creating a kingdom of man, um, like Ishbosheth. And then we see some faithful men temporarily serving the wrong side and even knowingly doing so out of whatever fear they, that Abner had for man. And then last, we see wicked men among the kingdom of God. And that tells us something about fighting our own battles. Abner was clearly in the wrong. Um, in 2 Samuel 3, again, let me just point to where we see this. In, in 2 Samuel 3, 18, it says, Now then bring it about, for the Lord had promised um, for the Lord has promised David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines. So Abner knew that David was the anointed king. And yet there were other men um, waging war by the passions of their flesh. Other men in Judah. James 4, 1, what, it, what causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this? Your own flesh within you. We need to fight for the purity of the church and for our families, um, but the battle, when we serve Jesus Christ, it needs to always first be against our own flesh. We need to keep our own flesh in check. So if you are convicted that there's another person who's fighting on the wrong side of a particular matter, um, you need to ask yourself a question as you confront this issue. Are you attacking the issue itself? And wanting that person to be saved? Or are you attacking the person? Do you actually want your fellow man to be saved by Christ? Or do you take joy in there being casualties on Twitter? In a, in a hard, heated debate with someone. One commentator in 2 Samuel 2, what, what they pointed out was the story of a lady who had heard George Whitfield speak in New York. And what, he, what she said about George Whitfield was striking. Mr. Whitfield was so cheerful that it tempted me to become a Christian. Mr. Whitfield was so cheerful that it tempted me to become a Christian. In conflict with one's neighbors, do you find ways to speak with the right kind of winsomeness? Are you devoted to God and simultaneously cheerful toward your enemy? Uh, to, to use that, um, that battle at the pool of Gibeon in relation to a proverb, Proverbs twelve eighteen. There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Our words can be like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. David was seeking to heal all the people of Israel and you reunite them together while there are other men who, there are even men in our very midst who don't mind using rash words like sword thrusts. So our loyalty to Christ and our loyalty, um, our, it, 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 our loyalty to Christ, it has to touch down in our own prayer lives. It has to actually be something that we are spending time praying about. When we are in battles, when there are battles that are a reality around us, we have to pray for those people. You have to pray for those who are like Joab, who might be really quick 
As we'll see later, more versions of this. We've only seen a small hint of it here, but we'll see more versions of Joab being very quick to battle. And then we see Abner, one humble enough to later change sides and come to Judah. We have to be willing to pray for both of those kinds of people. Okay, so that's, that's the first point. There's going to be conflict. In the kingdom of God, there is conflict. And then um, next what we're going to look at is trusting the Lord in, with conflict in the local church body. So there's a great refinement happening in the church today. The American church today, a great refinement happening in the church of Denver today. Um, and that results in tragic divisions. Tragic divisions that can affect Thanksgiving meals. What kind of things you're willing to talk about with different people. Um, I have witnessed friendships in the last eight years. A fallout from such divisions. In the last few years, we've witnessed um, God blowing things up since 2020 in ways that, um, that it requires us to have a, a greater refined meaning of what it means to be faithful Christians, to actually go to church on a Sunday, to stand up for the unborn, to stay committed to what God requires in particular, specific things that he says, and not to back down from those. Jabesh Gilead, they they saw how Saul, out of envy, had squandered the strength of Israel. But what did they do? They lingered in a kingdom built on the ambitions of man. When you see within the local church, there being actual ways that people are trusting more in man than in God, what do you do? It's another thing entirely, um, it's one thing to be able to call it out. It's another thing entirely to actually seek reform and to faithfully walk forward in believing that that reform is absolutely necessary. Judah was in an impoverished position. David was in an impoverished position. It was an impoverished position that took determining a love for God and a love for his kingdom over friendship with the world, over friendship with the rest of Israel. Do you mind being numbered with those weird Christians? Are you willing to hate father and mother for the sake of Christ? Survey how you would do with a public decision to boldly live out principles of Christianity, to boldly lay your down life, boldly lay your life down for God. It's in times like what, the one that um, where Jabesh Gilead was confronted by this decision. It's times like that that we we need to pay close attention to. Abortion um, is a wicked evil. Are you willing to say that out loud? Are you willing to say that you believe that God-fearing education for our children is essential? There are aspects of a meek kingdom that appeal to us, and then there are other aspects that we really just don't want to have to say out loud or you want to mumble under your breath or only say when you're in a secure room, soundproof walls. 
We're in a church um, where we have to be devoted to the kingdom by whatever means necessary, regardless of what trials God puts us through. Um, Our own church, we're in the heart of a city um, that prides itself in the idols of sex, in the idols of recreation, the idols of not being tied down to your family. We seek um, to preach the scriptures wherever we live, but um, even saying that a faithful Christian, um, but we have to be willing to say specifically what a Christian looks like, what the Christian life looks like. We're to follow Jesus in whatever battles he would have us in, even if it causes the loss of a friendship, even if it causes a civil war within the broader local evangelical church. But we also must not fight like fools. And so your faith, um, when it comes to a point in which you have to speak out for what Christ actually says, it can be choked by the things of the world and shrivel up. Or it can grow in service to the triune God. Or it can actually learn how to flourish in the midst of adversity, trusting God no matter what he says. So follow the Lord wherever he takes you, church. Um, When the valley seems dark, be determined to follow the Lord's anointed. He will lead us beside still waters. And where you see folly within the church, would you entrust those particular things to God? Don't just laugh about it. These are actual souls. Would you seek wise counsel when it happens within your own family? Would you seek to actually press in on those conflicts? And don't despair when God brings that your way. So don't despair. Um, Don't be hasty with Abners who humbly change their mind. But also don't ignore those sins that lie closest to you. Those like Joab, who might be on the the right side, but are doing wicked things. Okay, God God acts at dining room tables, um, but he's also not quick to anger. He's patient. 2 Peter 2 talks about that. In the appointed time, God will lift us out of every trouble. And he may even bring those you once counted as friends to faith and repentance. I'm going to read a quote now um, from Machen. Um, you, you may have seen at the front of the, the bulletin, there's one quote by Machen. He has another one by the, about the church that is just excellent. Um, and I'd like to close our time in focusing on the local church on that. The battle of God is fought with different weapons than the battle of man. Is there no refuge from strife? Is there no place of refreshing where a man can prepare for the battle of life? Is there no place where two or three can gather in Jesus' name to forget for the moment all those things that divide nation from nation and race from race, to forget human pride, to forget the passions of war, to forget the puzzling problems of industrial strife, and to unite in overflowing gratitude at the foot of the cross. If there be such a place, then that is the house of God, and at the gate of heaven, 
And from under that house will go forth a river that will revive the weary world. The church is the place for that. The church is the place where the weary world can find rest. And it might seem just like a little mustard seed compared to the loud kingdoms of this world. But God loves to build his kingdom with left-handed means. He loves to build his kingdom with left-handed means. And as we close, what I'd like to remind us of is that we too were once Jabesh Gilead. We too were once in the shoes of Jabesh Gilead. What David said in verses 5 to 7, it also relates to us. Um, What David said, I'll remind you, he said, As you have shown steadfast love and faithfulness to Saul, may the Lord now show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. Therefore, David said, Take strength and serve me as your Lord along with the house of Judah. The Lord's anointed came to Jabesh Gilead and invited them into the kingdom of God. And so Christ does with us, but we had nothing to offer. He came to us, we did not go to him, freely willing ourselves, freely offering ourselves. Um, and I made me think of um, in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 opens up by saying that the... Um, that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. There is nothing of our own volition that we could do to come to the kingdom. And then later in verse 15, what it says is, um, verse 14 and 15, for Christ himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. So Christ, he has come and he has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And what has he done in 2,000 years? What started as a small mustard seed in Jerusalem is now the kingdom of God in all the world. And it is growing. It continues to grow. So over 2,000 years, remember that remember that God's promises are working out for the good and glory of his name. And they're working out in your life and in mine. So let your hands be strong and valiant this week. Fight the good fight of faith. How has Christ come to us? We all began as wicked men in the wrong kingdom. We were born as wicked men and we know that. But God, in all of his grace, has showered us with a new man. He's showered us with his grace and making us part of the new man in Jesus Christ. So David, he had access to God through the Ephod, through Abiathar. It's likely how he inquired of the Lord at the beginning of 2 Samuel 2. But we have access to God through Jesus Christ in prayer. By the Holy Spirit. So in the low points of our own lives, when we are in the dark valleys, when we um, see just bloody warfare all around us, what can we do but inquire, inquire of the Lord with the work that he has set up before us? Be strong and valiant and take courage. Let's pray.
God, I pray um, that you would give us strength this morning. Uh, Particularly at this table. The means by which you have made us into a new man. Pray that you would cause us to be a people who are pure. Who do not desire to just be in the right camp. But but who want to be faithful men in the right camp. Who do not just desire um, for our enemies to die. um, But who desire for our enemies to come to new life in Jesus Christ. Lest they die. Pray that this table would be a joyful meal for us. That would inform how we go about our Thanksgiving meals. Um, Give us faith this morning in your word, in the life that happens in your son. In your name. Amen.